You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this BJSM podcast, and I'm delighted to be with Michael Turner, who's the Chief Medical Advisor of the Lawn Tennis Association. Michael, many sports medicine people look up to you and envy your position. How did you get into tennis? Uh, Tennis was actually by design. Um, Most other jobs fall into your lap in the fact that nobody else will do them. uh, And somebody comes along and says, you know, we want this awful ghastly event over a weekend uh, at Christmas or Easter covered by a doctor and you volunteer and you end up doing it for free for another 20 years. With tennis, they decided that they would uh, appoint a new chief medical advisor in 1994 um, and they advertised the job. So it's the only job I've actually responded to an advert and I sent in my CV um, and uh, at the time I was uh, selected to be the GB uh, team doctor for the Winter Olympics, which were being held in Lillehammer. Okay, so I went with the British team to Lillehammer, and I got a little message from the LTA saying that they were going to have their interviews next week, which was uh, um, just before the start of the games. And I said, well, it was slightly inconvenient. I was in Lillehammer um, looking after the British team, and they said, well, you're either here or you know you're not on the list. So um, I duly got a day pass um, and I travelled back from Lillehammer on a train which had uh, seven smoking carriages and one non-smoking carriage and there were like 50 people in the non-smoking carriage and two in the other smoking carriages. So we were suffocated um, and very hot in the non-smoking carriage uh, and I got back in time and I went to the interview and said, you know, what does the job consist of? And they said, well, we haven't sort of really got a very much of an idea and we hoped you would tell us you know what you know what you thought but we thought it would be full time and I said well if you've never had a doctor before and you don't really know what you want I think it's unlikely that you need somebody full time you know have you got an office have you got a secretary have you got any idea and the answer was no office no secretary no idea um, so I told them what I thought they wanted <laughs> and then I went back to Lillehammer to look after um, the winter games and uh, Julie got a message from them saying you would seem to be the only person who actually knew what we wanted. Um, And so they gave me the job. um, And that was on the basis of doing um, a couple of days a week with no office, no secretarial support um, at uh, Queen's Club in in West uh, London. And uh, again, I sort of struggled on and 17 years later, I'm still doing the job. That's fantastic. And what are the main things that have advanced in sports medicine for tennis over those 17 years? I think the whole way in which support programs are are available to both youngsters and senior players um, has changed dramatically. Um, It was very uh, sporadic. Um, There was tournament cover, obviously, that was quite well um, uh, developed in the fact that both the ATP and the WTA have have long established tours where they provide sports medicine um, at each event. So players could move from one event to another. But that meant, of course, that they got like 20 events, 20 opinions, because every time you went to a different event, there was a whole different infrastructure and there was nobody back home to try and sieve out um, the rather more eccentric ideas that other people uh, gave you. So um, we didn't have a centralised system. We didn't have any culture. um, And quite honestly, most athletes have a deep suspicion of their governing body anyway. So basically, if you're employed by the governing body, then you must be rubbish is quite often the sort of criteria and that you go out um, to find a doctor who's very expensive, whose opinion you then value. 
preferably somebody who's abroad. Um, and we've managed to change that. And the infrastructure of people understanding that, you know, physiotherapy is so important, the physical therapists um, uh, and in every governing body are the frontline troops. And the doctor is sort of there in the background, whereas before it was always, you know, an eminent orthopedic surgeon who was in charge of the team or the club. Um, and, of course, the vast majority of things didn't need surgery. But nonetheless, um, it gave that sort of ethos of specialist uh, review. And now sports medicine is a specialty in its own right. And people who've been doing it for a long period of time have suddenly become legitimized. That takes us into a good point with relation to the specialty and the different elements of sports medicine working together. What do you see as the strengths for UK sports medicine in the faculty I think that everybody who works in sport understands that it is it is teamwork um, and, and that you have no one individual part, whether it's nutrition or psychology or, you know, sports medicine, physiotherapy uh, or, or uh, sports physicians or even orthopedic surgeons um, who can do it alone. You know, if you do the operation, the success of the operation is totally dependent on the rehab. And that's not done by the orthopedic surgeon. He doesn't stand there doing exercises. It's done by the physical therapist. And a lot of the great orthopedic surgeons who have great success, Dick Stedman, say that, you know, basically he does 25% of the work and that 75% is done elsewhere. And I think that's what's so good about, you know, sports medicine as a whole has always been a multidisciplinary um, uh, speciality and we all recognize the the importance of uh, what else other people have got to contribute we're not territorial and we're used to sharing ideas um, and, and trying to find novel ways of treating things that uh, affect the lives of professional athletes and does one need to be a high level tennis player to be the chief medical advisor for the lta uh, well, in which case they would find great difficulty finding anybody to fulfil the role. Um, I, you know, am a rubbish tennis player, and therefore, uh, though I put on my uh, who's who, uh, you know, application that I play tennis and I ski. I'm actually quite good at skiing, um, but I don't tend to ski with ski races because I'm very slow, um, and I don't tend to play tennis at the National Tennis Centre because it's quite obvious how rubbish I am amongst everybody else. So uh, you, you do things sort of quietly in private and play a bit of tennis. Um, uh, my partner, Babette, is uh, the, the equivalent of my job. She looks after the Tennis Federation in uh, Holland um, and she's a very good tennis player. And of course, she refuses to play with me in public now because I am so rubbish. Um, uh, it's quite embarrassing. She always chooses usually a German doctor who's very good at tennis whenever there's a double match and I'm left on the bench with you know basically all the other rubbish players to pick up the partners it's sort of like a sort of dancing routine you know your wallflower I'm the equivalent of a medical wallflower in the tennis environment well that's very encouraging for people who want to be sports medicine specialists who aren't too good at sport um Michael, you've worked at a lot of major tournaments and with a lot of famous players and obviously you're not going to mention them by name but have there been any illuminating instances Right. Um, so the thing about tennis is it is it's sort of different to most other sports in the fact that uh, the top players are playing against each other every week or every other week. If, if you're number three in the world, it's because you are playing against number one, two, four and five regularly. It's not like being the Olympic champion, which you stay for four years or um, the 100 metres champion where you may only race once or twice a year. The tennis players uh, have a very clear idea of the hierarchy and there's always another tournament round the corner. So you don't 
tend to have the same kind of pressures where people have strived all their life for one event that occurs every four years. Um, sure, it's it's important that somebody plays in in Wimbledon or the U.S. Open or the or the uh, uh, Australian Open, but if they don't make it then there is another French Open and another Wimbledon and another um, uh, US Open to come around. So um, players are pretty philosophical about getting injured and, and, and don't uh, uh, pobble around. Uh, where you see how, how they work out is where they when they play for their country, which is the Davis Cup, uh, which is an environment that's really quite different to any other environment. When they're on their own, they are individuals when they come together as the davis cup then they've got to interact with other players and they've got to be good um and you find all sorts of bizarre things where you know we had a davis cup captain who insisted that um all our players uh, didn't drink any alcohol whatsoever um and you know these were senior players like tim henman greg rosetsky people who were you know in their late 20s quite mature um and it seemed to be that you know the, the team captain didn't take any note of the fact that Everybody was staying in a room where there was a mini bar, so you didn't eat it, uh, you didn't drink at the meal, but you were able to go back to your room and have a glass of wine, and that was sort of acceptable. But there was somehow a curfew on uh, drinking uh, alcohol um, as a sort of perception that this was focusing the athletes on what they were doing, um, and, uh, and it used to make us smile, particularly as the as the physios at the time were regular drinkers of large quantities of wine and were certainly not going to stop just because the Davis Cup captain decided that that was uh, off limits. And Michael, as we bring this towards a close, uh, I did read uh, Andre Agassi's book, Open, which was a great read actually. Did that bring to mind any issues in the British sporting scene or was it very different in the UK? I don't think so. I think that, you know, there's there's a parental pressure issue, which, you know, I think everybody understands occurs in, in women's tennis and quite clearly from Agassiz, from, you know, in men's tennis as well. Uh, parental expectations, um, you know, the, the startling thing that, you know, Agassiz came up with was the idea that he came into contact with what we would call recreational or social drugs. And I don't think that would come as a great surprise to most people. Tennis is no different to any other environment in which you know social uh, um, standards are are any different, and therefore you know players in, in tennis come across um, uh, uh, social drugs in the same way as, as anyone else does. Um, and we recently had a you know case of Richard Gasquet, well documented in the public domain, where he caught cocaine poisoning from kissing Pamela in a nightclub and. Uh, as you know, this is sort of common problem. Um, you know, you get caught by somebody you don't know in a nightclub. Um, and what was quite interesting is that the translation of, you know, a kiss in a nightclub is slightly different um, uh, in French. The French terminology is it was not just a kiss, something a bit more than a kiss, um, which explained why he got uh, a shortened sentence, because the judges quite clearly agreed that kissing Pamela in a nightclub was quite enough to catch cocaine poisoning. Okay. So that's something you don't always find in the print version of BJSM, which is fantastic. And that's why we enjoy these podcasts, Michael. And um, before we do go, I know you've got a conference in the middle of the year. Tell us about that. Uh, well, every four years in line with the Olympics, we've tended to hold a conference just before Wimbledon. It's a time when everybody's focusing their attention um, on tennis, um, very high profile, and, and it's been very successful. We managed to bring uh, a number of different experts from around the world um, 
to um, uh, to London um, and be able to disseminate the cutting-edge uh, um, uh, tennis medicine, if you like to call it that, to a wide variety of people who are interested uh, in the sport. Next year is slightly different in the fact that we've widened um, and the in, the interest base on the base that uh, there are not that huge number of doctors and physios who are involved only in tennis. So we're looking at things like the throwing shoulder, which involves people who are involved in cricket, and we're looking at the hip and groin and involving people who are involved in soccer. So we're we're, we're looking at things that are particularly of interest to to tennis, which includes uh, playing in the heat. But playing in the heat is of great interest to everybody because, of course, Qatar have just won a, a, a World Cup. Uh, uh, bid uh, 2022 uh, where the temperatures are very high in Qatar in the summertime and we're also in addition to um, the heat rules we're talking about age eligibility in sport um, age is an issue particularly in the girls um, game in tennis where um, when uh, uh, they first start on the tour they're restricted in the number of events that they can take part in to try and reduce the load that's put on the body but there are eligibility rules also in golf um, and in gymnastics so it's of interest to a number of um, different uh, uh, disciplines um, as to where these rules came from. Is there any science behind them? Uh, can they be justified? And actually, do they work by restricting the amount of uh, play that a player, a tennis player does at the ages of 16, 17, 18? Do you reduce the injury risk? So, yep, we've got a number of, uh, of things that hopefully other people will find uh, of interest. And on the Sunday of the talk, of the um, uh, uh, the event, we've also got uh, a collaboration with the largest group of uh, physiotherapists in sports medicine, uh, the ACPSM, who are having their annual study day on, on the Sunday. So we expect 150 physios to be there alongside the doctors and the sports scientists who are attending our conference. Fantastic. And that's in late June. And the link for that is on the BJSM site. So, Michael, we'll leave it there for today. Great to have you talking about tennis medicine on BJSM. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Karim. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.